Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. We are going to uh, look this morning at one of the most obvious, I believe, obvious truths in the New Testament, maybe one of the most obvious truths and clear truths taught throughout Scripture, and that is that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must suffer. And... Uh, I say that because it's, it's one of those truths that gets pushed out of our culture. It gets pushed out of uh, Christian consciousness. And let's just be really honest, we functionally push it out of our lives all the time. And we really don't want any more suffering. We've had enough of that, right? We're afraid of what Christ would call us to do. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning and as we get into the text, here's what I want to say to you. My goal in part as I was praying over this sermon is to help some of you who are wrestling with why life hurts so bad and why the Christian life has cost so much. And I want to say to you something that I feel like isn't said enough because a lot of times we feel like God is against us when God is actually all for us in it and with us in it. So why don't you take a moment and then I'll lead us in prayer and here's here's the question just to ask yourself. God, so some of you, uh, I feel like the wound is an old wound and it's put you on defense. And some of you, it's an ongoing struggle and you're just tired. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> And good for you today. <laughs> uh, but let's just, why don't you take it to the Lord and then let me, let, it, let me pray for all of us and let's spend a little time with Jesus in the word. Our God and Father, um, you know us. And you know that we are self-protective like crazy. And you know uh, how many are weary here today? How many when the scriptures were read going, oh no, we're going to get hit with a bat today. The weight is too great. The cost is too high. We hear that your grace is sufficient for us, but we fear that we're running on fumes. Well, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we see in this text of Scripture his absolute resolve to go to the cross. But not only to go to the cross, but to send his disciples out to the refugees of the religious system. To the broken and the near needy, the tax collector and sinner. And to announce to them 
that there is resurrection power coming for all the broken and the needy. And you don't have to put on strength. You just have to receive strength. Help me. Help us. Help us to rewrite American evangelicalism, which tells us that if we do it right, we'll all be superheroes. There's only one hero, and we desperately need him today. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple months ago, I was sitting in my office. John walks in, Pastor John walks in the front door, or the door of my office, and he looks at me, and his eyes get big. And he says to me, you drink caffeine drinks? Like caffeinated drinks? And I'm looking, I'm going, I'm holding a bottle of water. And I'm going, have you been drinking too much caffeine? <laughs> and he goes, no, look at the bottle. And I look at the bottle, I just, I had stopped at Quick Trip, got gas, went and got a bottle of water because it was hot, and I looked, or I was thirsty, and I was looking at the, the bottle of water, and it, it says water, and then in big orange print, plus caffeine. <laughs> I had drank half that sucker, and I didn't know I was caffeinated. I'm trying to quit caffeine. My wife knows. 3 a.m. He's looking at me going, man, you lost your mind. <laughs> and isn't it amazing? Like, I went in there, and I'll tell you what I was focusing on, water and price. I didn't look at the little label that said, you know, I, th I thought when I saw orange bagley, it was probably tangerine. You know, there was probably something in there, but I was just getting water. Isn't it amazing how you can look at something and miss the plain language that's right in front of you? And that's what I fear happens with this text of Scripture. We're going to hear Jesus call us to take up our cross and follow him. And you and I need to listen to this because it's not hidden in the corners of the Bible. It's not like you sign up and follow Jesus and then you suddenly discover that in the last pages of the Bible, there's this little comment on, oh, this might cost you a little bit. Jesus like puts it right up front. Puts it in bold print. He's going to say it repeatedly in all the Gospels. And he's not saying it so that we can go, oh no, it's all on me and I can't do it. It's exactly the opposite. What he's telling us is that this world is broken. And in order to minister to broken people, he's going to send broken people with an all-sufficient Savior. That's what he's going to do for us. And he's not asking us to do some superhero thing, but just to look and announce and point to Jesus. And so that's why it seems rather cruel that so many Christians get taught another gospel. It's painful to, to hit the reality of life in the Christian life and to be stuck thinking, am I the only one that this is costing me? Am I the only one feeling crazy and alone in the world? When that's not how you should feel at all. Listen to what Packer says. Well, I'll, I'll give you the Bonhoeffer quote first. Everybody knows this discipleship comment by Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man to come and follow him, he bids him come and what? Die. He bids him come and die. In fact, in the text we're going to look at today, he bids us come and die how often? Daily. This is a spiritual discipline of dying and rising again. <laughs> dying in our weakness and rising again in the power of the risen Christ. As a display and a declaration that Jesus Christ really did come to save sinners. Packer says this, 
a certain type of ministry of the gospel is cruel. It doesn't mean to be, but it is. The one which pictures the normal Christian life as trouble-free is bound to lead sooner or later to bitter disillusionment. And I, I just want to acknowledge, some of you probably are struggling in your Christian life because it's been hard. And you want to say, is there a God who raises the dead? Where are you, Jesus? You struggle at that level. Let me just give you permission to struggle. You don't need my permission, but the Bible gives you permission to struggle through these things, but take it to Jesus. Wrestle with Jesus. Come to Jesus. Listen to Philip Yancey in his book, um, Disappointment with God. He says, he's talking about the book of Job. One bold message in the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Listen to that list. Which one's yours? That's a pretty good list. He can absorb them all. As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God. They prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. In this respect, the Bible prefigures a tenet of modern psychology. You can't really deny your feelings or make them disappear, so you might as well express them. I think that's what Gabe was saying earlier when he was leading us. You can't sing today, just say to God, I can't sing today. That's how God expects us to come. God can deal with every human response save one. He cannot abide the response I fall back on instinctively and attempt to ignore him or treat him as though he doesn't exist. That response never once occurred to Job. So bring your brokenness to him. Bring your struggle to him. Bring your surprise at how hard the Christian life has been. Bring it to him. But I'm telling you to do this for more than one reason. The reason why, number one, is as we come to him, he's sufficient for that. He's come for that. He's come to rescue us in that. But let me take it a step further. This is not only so you can come to Jesus and have Jesus minister to you in your brokenness. It's in your brokenness Jesus intends to send you out. This is to put you on mission to people. And so we have, like around us, we use the language refugees. We have refugees from American religiosity, refugees from American cultural ideals, refugees from hypocrisy and brokenness and violation, right? And they don't need to hear me say, I got it all together. They need to hear me say, I know the one who does, right? And that's the call that's going on in this text of Scripture. So as we walk through this text, I want to ask you, be honest, what, what has been your view of Christianity? What's the message that has sort of either intentionally or subliminally, subliminally, <laughs> exactly, thank you, yeah, sunk into your consciousness out of which you function and wrestle and distance yourself from God? And I want to really ask two questions uh, this morning. What did you expect Jesus to do in your life? But that's not enough. You say, Jesus, I didn't expect you to drive me here, take me through this, walk me through this long, hard journey. 
What did you expect Jesus to do in your life? And here's the other one. What do you expect Jesus to do through your life? Because that's what's being answered in the text. Jesus in Luke chapter 9 is now turning towards Jerusalem. He's turning towards Calvary. He is decisively turning. If you look down at verse 51 in Luke chapter 9, he is now making his way towards Jerusalem, and there is one thing on his mind, the cross. And as he gathers his disciples and he speaks to them, he is adjusting their expectations. They need some adjustment to their expectations. Who do they think the Christ is? Their, messi their messianic identity needs to be clear. That's got to be absolutely clear in their minds. Then they need to understand the kingdom strategy. What is Jesus doing? Because he's not doing what they even expect him to do all the way to the end, right? And then, finally, what is our discipleship responsibility? What's he asking of us? And it all is aligned with who he is and why he's come. So let's, be, let's begin with that text of Scripture and ask the first question, Jesus' messianic identity. Look at Luke 9, verse 18. And I want you to notice a couple things. Listen to this. Now it happened as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Isn't that an interesting line? Just worth hovering over that. What is he doing? Praying. How is he praying? Alone. Who is with him? The disciples. Boy, that's disappointing in and of itself. Doesn't that happen right up to the very end? Are you still sleeping? Thank God that Jesus is not like me. Thank God that he's patient with us. But that's how we begin. Jesus is praying. And out of that praying, he poses a question. He asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who are, the, who, who are people saying? Now, lest you think that he is just having you know, an existential messianic questioning moment. Jesus isn't insecure here. He's actually driving home who he is to his disciples. He is about to define why he has come. So he's praying. He comes out of it and says, who do the people say that I am? And if you look at the verse there, they respond together. Who do the crowd say I am? Verse 19, they answer John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And so, as he's coming along, this question is crucial, and he begins to press into them. Who do they say? Do you remember, this sounds very familiar to earlier in Luke 9, who, who also was wrestling with who Jesus was? Earlier, it's Herod. Herod hears that John the Baptist is raised again. They hears that Elijah's coming. He's getting rumors that a great prophet has come, hearing exactly the same thing. The disciples are hearing it. So ru rumor is spreading. Uh, people are talking. The impact of Jesus' ministry is now becoming notorious or famous, however you want to describe it. And as it's going out there, Jesus is saying, what are people saying? And it's interesting that as he's asking the question, people are actually trying to honor him. They've seen miracles. He's spoken profoundly. He's had great courage. But they do what, what the religions of the world do. They give him prophetic status, and Jesus won't st stop there. He won't settle for that. 
They say you're a great prophet. Maybe John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Maybe the promised Elijah, that's the great prophet that has come now and has been revealed to us. And so they're pointing to that. But Jesus is pressing in because he needs, by the grace of God, them to see. Because this whole mission counts on them seeing. No, I'm not just another prophet and another teacher who is here to come. I am the one they were all pointing to. That's who I am. And so he poses another question, but who do you say that I am? And our good friend Simon Peter steps up to the plate and gets an answer right. Thank God. Doesn't always get it right, doesn't stick with it right, doesn't understand what he's saying completely. But he says, you are who? The Christ of God. Now that's crucial. Because what's being said here is that the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, that's him. Abraham's seed through whom all the nations would be blessed, that's him. This is the one that the, all the law had prepared for, and then David, the king, was promised that his son would reign on his throne forever and ever. And Isaiah picks up and says, the son of David will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's who's coming here. This is Daniel's son of man who comes on the, cl on the clouds of glory and all the nations will be under him. This is not a prophet. This is the one all the prophets were pointing ahead to. This is what you have to believe if you're going to die, if you're going to take up your cross, and if you're going to follow him. So this is why Philip Ryken writes, we know that the question, who do you say I am, is important because Jesus prayed before he asked it. More than any other gospel writer, Luke mentions the times that Jesus spends in prayer. Maybe Jesus was praying to see if this was the right time to ask the disciples who he was. Or maybe he was praying that they would come up with a good answer. Listen to what Tom Schreiner says. Jesus prays at key junctures in the gospel. At his baptism, for his ministry, in choosing his disciples, when he's transfigured, when his disciples ask him to pray for Simon's faith, and at Gethsemane. Here he prays before asking his disciples about his identity, which they must answer rightly if they are to be his disciples and the nucleus of his mission. Thus, Jesus almost certainly prays that they would truly understand and grasp who he is. I want you to think about this for a moment. Why does Jesus pray that they would confess that he is the Christ of God? Here's why. Because despite everything they had seen, and remember, Jesus showed up in his hometown and quoted Isaiah chapter 61, and he said, listen, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I have come to announce liberty to the captives. I am going to give sight to the blind and uh, cause the lame to walk and set the, the captive free, and Jesus set out to do that. Did they have evidence that he was the Christ as he claimed? Oh, yeah, right? He healed. He touched the leper. He calmed the storms. Who is this that even the water and the waves listened to him? He cast out demons. He raised the dead. It's not about evidence. Here's the problem, folks. There, it's not like there is a lack of evidence for who Jesus is. It's not the lack of evidence. It's in my heart not wanting Christ to be who he is, wanting him to bow to who I need him to be, what I want him to be. 
And we need a work of God to truly believe that he's the Christ. We need a miracle of God. Take your Bibles and turn a little further in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 16. It's one of these, another tough passage of Scripture where Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in the parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, rich man dies and goes, and he ends up in, in, uh, in the grave in hell, and there's a chasm between um, the, the rich man and Abraham and a poor man named Lazarus, and so there's a discussion that takes place. It says in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. Isn't this amazing how blind we'll be even under condemnation? He still thinks he's in a privileged position. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received many good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you might not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophet. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. That's a strong statement. What is he saying there? That the problem isn't that in the scriptures there isn't enough evidence. In the life of Jesus, there isn't enough evidence. The, the reality is that there is a barrier in the human heart that will not bow and recognize that Jesus is the Christ unless God has mercy and changes our hearts. We won't do it. We need God to do that. That's what's going on in this text of Scripture. And so Jesus gets down and prays this prayer because he wants the disciples to respond, you are the Christ. They would never truly get that until God changes their heart. And opens their hearts. And you know, that's, that's a reminder to us because we can often get in our struggles and say, God, what about this? God, what about that? As if God is the one who is on trial. Listen to C.S. Lewis from his book, God in the Dock. He says, the ancient man, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. The, for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. The audacity of the modern man. He is the judge. God is on trial in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is man is on the bench and God is on the dock. And you and I need to stop and realize, like the quote we had from Tozer, God is not on trial, we are. No one is ever going to stand before God and say there is a lack of evidence that Jesus is the Christ. There is more than sufficient. There is centuries of prophecy and prediction. There is 
ample evidence in his death and resurrection in the transforming. But what we need is to God to change our hearts. We need God to work in our hearts. so that. And let's just be honest. Even in the moment when we're really struggling at the cost of, of, of following Christ and how it's not going, we need the help of God to say, Christ, you're on the throne. Christ, you are the king. You are the redeemer of all things. Come and speak in me because there is in my sinful, wayward, wandering heart an inclination to constantly put God on trial. God is not on trial. God is on triumph. He is on his way to deliver humanity. So that's the first thing. Who is he? Who, what is the messianic identity? You must believe. It's your hope that Jesus is the Christ if you're going to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow him. Then Jesus goes to the kingdom strategy. And it sort of reminds me, you ever watch a football game and on the sidelines, the coaches are, are um, calling in plays to the quarterback or to the offensive line or the defensive line, and they've got their clipboards in front of them, right? You see their eyeballs. Why? Because everybody's stealing the plays on the other side. It's almost like Jesus pulls the disciples in and holds the clipboard up so they've got something to tell you. And here's the divine strategy. Listen to what it says here in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, what? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the th and on the third day be raised. So well before Calvary, well before Easter, well before the cross, Jesus does it a couple of times in this chapter. He pulls them aside and says, you've got to get the strategy because it's not what you're thinking. It's not what they're thinking. They've got a political Messiah. He's going to ride in on a, on a white horse with his sword drawn, and he's going to conquer the world and become the king of the nations and bring them down. No, he's coming on the foal of a donkey. He's slipping in behind the defensive line. He's coming in in a way that nobody expects. He is now, Luke chapter 9, marching towards Jerusalem. We used to play capture the flag as kids. We sometimes still do it when we do paintball here at Waterbrook. You know what capture the flag is? It's a game where you have a center line, and there's a flag on each end. And if you're playing capture the flag, your goal is to run to the other team's flag, grab the flag, and bring it to your side. But if you're running to get the flag and someone touches you, you have to go into jail. And so you go into jail and you stay there and soon all your teammates are with you as they're caught. And, and you're reduced numbers. You can't defend. You can't be on offense. Somebody's got to get the people out of jail. And so what do we do? We used to do this thing where we would fake being caught. So, you know, you'd run to the other side when nobody was looking and then you'd slump. And you'd walk to jail. And you just walk in, and everybody's looking over at you. And every once in a while, they weren't paying attention. They think, oh, you can only do this once, and then after it doesn't work. But you'd wander over there, and they'd be looking, oh, he's going to jail. And then you'd get in jail, and you'd go. And everybody would run. Half the team would run back on defense. People would run around to the flag, and you would fake them out because they thought you were defeated. This is, in a sense, not Jesus faking, but really going. He's saying, I am going in behind defensive lines. I'm going in to Jerusalem, and I'm telling you, I'm going to walk right in there. And the religious leaders are going to think, aha, we finally got them. And Pilate is going to think, I've got authority over you. Are you not listening to me? And I will not say much. I'll just say, there's, no, there's an authority here, but it ain't you. 
You would have no authority if it wasn't for God in heaven. And Satan will be wringing his hands and rejoicing and saying, now the Messiah, the hope of the world, is crushed, and we'll nail him to a tree. And when they nail me to a tree, it'll be over. Victory will be won. My dear friends, when you see Jesus hanging on the cross, you do not see a defeated Messiah. He has just won the battle. He has gone into jail and set the captives free. That's how we are to look at the cross. That's the strategy. Death to life. Crush me, set the captives free. Listen to an old hymn from the 6th century, the Vexilla Regis. It says these words, Above the regal banners fly, now shines the cross's mystery. Upon it life did death endure, and yet by death did life procure. That which the prophet king of old hath in mysterious verse foretold is now accomplished whilst we see God ruling the nations from a... Isn't that a great line? That is a fabulous line. We are meant to look at the cross and not see Christ defeated, but Satan defeated, sin defeated, death defeated. The kingdom has come and the king is reigning. Listen, listen to Jeremy Treat. He says, the resurrection is not the beginning, but the revelation of Christ's kingship and the inauguration of his kingdom on earth. Jesus' death is not a defeat that needs to be made right by resurrection, but a victory that needs to be revealed and implemented by resurrection. The battle is won. It is finished. He is king, right? The resurrection vindicates it. That's what's going on. So Jesus starts out with his messianic identity and his kingdom strategy. He's going right into Jerusalem, right to the cross. He's taking Satan's sin, death, the curse, hell down. That's what he's going to do. Then he looks at his disciples. That's the strategy. There isn't another strategy. That's the strategy. It's not by being an American superhero. We're not looking for the testimonies of great and glamorous people. My dear friends, this kingdom is going to go by the weary and the wounded and the broken, telling day after day after day that my hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. That's how it works. And so then he says in this next section of Scripture, this is discipleship expectations. What does he expect of us? And I'm going to give you a word. It's not an original word. It's used by many theologians. It's the word cruciformity. Your life, your ministry, your mission follows the path of the cross. That you must lie down your life just like Christ laid down his life. And as you conform your life as the church conforms its ministry to the, gro- the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So listen to what uh, Jeremy Treat says again. God advances his kingdom through the church as it conforms to the cross. I'll read another quote that's not up there. God's kingdom is a cruciform kingdom. Just as it was established and inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection, it will be advanced over and over through those whom the Spirit unites to Christ in his death and resurrection. So let me just explain that in a few ways. What is Jesus teaching here? First of all, when we follow as disciples of Jesus Christ, our lives are meant not only to announce 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to embody the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't just announce it, we embody it. And you hear that all the way through the scriptures. So Jesus in verse 23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so what happens is, is we go through our lives and daily we hear a voice saying, Kevin, get comfortable. Kevin, save your life. Kevin, protect yourself. Kevin, protect your reputation. Kevin, have some backbone and stand up for yourself. And Jesus says, Kevin, die, die, die. Die to self-protection. Die to your ego. Die to self-preservation. Die to those comforts that you're hoping that would hold your life. Die to those things. Lay them down. You're going to have to do this again tomorrow. And the Holy Spirit will guide you every day saying, what you need to show is not that you're strong, but that you're weak. But in the weakness, in the weariness, in the struggle of it all, there is a risen Savior. You do not have strength for tomorrow, but don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough. There's enough trouble for today. And you manifest over and over again the death and resurrection of Jesus. And people ask you, what's the reason for your hope? Why, when you are reviled, do you not revile in return? And you go, there's only one reason, because I have a Savior. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And that Savior died on the cross for my sins, my stupidity, my stubbornness. I'm not different than you. I've been delivered by a Savior who will deliver me and deliver me and deliver me to the very end until he delivers me finally home. We live out, we embody the gospel. I just need to tell you this, and I I really mean this for, I want you to hear if you're struggling and you're tired and you're broken, I want you to hear this, that that's actually the place where God does his greatest work. I remember a good friend of mine, Charlie Pettiplace, he was an alcoholic. He was a truck driver. He had a great laugh. You could hear him all over the place. And Charlie came to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the first things he did in his older years when he came to faith in Christ is he went to everybody that he could remember that was near him that he had sinned against and he repented of everything he had done wrong. And then I remember Charlie getting bone cancer and being in the hospital and the the joy on his face and the testimony in his life as as he would talk to the people in the in the bed beside him and say the this is not the end of the story marvelously in his weakness there's there's something about when all of life goes well and you go god has been so good there's something else when you say there is nothing in me left except the hope of the gospel And that's what sustains me. And my friends, that's what Waterbrook's called to do. We are not superheroes. We have a single superhero who has died from the cross and raised from the dead. That's who our hero is. He gets all the glory. Secondly, in this text of Scripture, not only do we see in this passage that we kind of go out and announce the gospel while we display the gospel in our lives, but we are also, as we're doing this, We are receiving and responding to and being affected by the gospel in our weakness. 
So we're actually having, we're, we're telling the story of the gospel and then we're depending on the power of the gospel. Listen to what's being said here. Look at verse 24. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I just want you to stop and think about this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know, we spend all our lives trying to save our lives. But if we save our lives so that we don't have to suffer and we don't have to share the gospel and all this kind of stuff, what will we end up doing? Losing our lives. And so here's the great thing about suffering. Here's the gift of suffering. When you suffer for the sake of the gospel, one of the things that happens in your life is God will expose to you the idols that you're using as substitute Christ. And in our weakness and in our idolatry, he shows us what we're depending on instead of him. And he says, isn't it better that you suffer and kill those idols instead of losing your soul? Right? Suffering has the glorious gift of showing us that our life is not found in our health and our wealth and our reputation and our comfort and our ease. Our health and our wealth is Christ. Our life is in Christ. Our hope is in Jesus alone and so that's why the scriptures redound over and over again with the exhortations right rejoice when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance let endurance do its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete lacking nothing here's the great thing about suffering we follow jesus people see jesus we follow jesus we see jesus we also see the stuff that we thought was life, and he burns it off. It'd be better that you lose your life, right? Why gain the whole world and lose your soul? It's better to take up the cross and follow him. Paul says that I might be crucified to the world. I've been in, 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 in union with Christ's crucifixion with me. The world has been crucified to me. I've been set free, and I've been crucified to the world. The third thing in this text of Scripture is it also is rejoicing in the glory that is to come. You see, one of the things that happens as we journey our way through suffering and ridicule and humiliation and opposition and, and hardship in the name of Christ as we're serving him, as we are starting to be reminded all the time that the story doesn't end here and the glory isn't found here. We have a taste of it. We have a foretaste of things to come. But there is a great feast day creation coming. And we have to get our eyes set on that glory. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in what? In his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And they will see Christ crucified and they will see him raised from the dead and they will see him exalted into heaven, ascending into heaven and they will see Christ reigning by the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them and they're all being told this is a new day. I will make all things new is the promise. And here's the question, what glory are you chasing? 
a glory that fades. Paul says, I do not consider the sufferings of this life worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. We prayed this morning for the Congo. And it is a dark place. I don't know how many of you remember what happened in Rwanda. But when I look at the Congo, it reminds me of Rwanda. Christian on the surface and corruption underneath and the horrific slaughter of lives. Congo's a dark place. But years and years ago, C.T. Studd went to China. He went to India. And then he ended up in Africa and he died in the Congo. That's where C.T. Studd died. And he's famous for a line which some of you will know. One life, twill soon be passed. Only one life, will twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But I want you to hear part of that. It's a longer poem. Let me read you just the last little bit. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. My dear friends, we've only been asked to give, us, give up this life. That's all. And it's a sigh. It's a breath. The g- grass flourishes, the flower flourishes, and then it fades. And then it's glory, glory, glory the nations around the throne and so the call is to follow Christ who snuck in behind enemy lines and took everything down triumphantly at the cross and looked at us and said go do the same thing they'll never expect it so friends get behind enemy lines go in places of sorrow places of fear places of difficulty places of hardship go in the name of Jesus and watch what he will do to the glory of his name. Let's, let's pray together. Thank you, O oh God, for this time together. Thank you for the clear words of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus has done the greatest thing of all, taken our sin, taken our shame, taken Satan down, conquered sin, death, and the curse, and secured for us everlasting hope. Oh, we love you, Jesus. Help us to follow through the difficulty. Strengthen the weak. Thank you, dear God, that you have called us to carry a cross, but you've promised one day we'll wear a crown because of Jesus who's worthy. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.